Good evening, guys. It's, uh, it's good to see you all. My name's Amani. I wouldn't have met most of you. Um, I was asked to come in and speak for last night, second last night of Summerfest and tonight as well. Um, but it's really good to be with you guys. Thank you very much for having me. Um, uh, we're going to get stuck into God's Word together. We've got a really awesome part of, part of the Bible uh, to look at this evening. So I'm going to pray for us and, and we'll get stuck into it together. Let me pray. Uh, Father, we give you great thanks for your Word to us. Thank you that you have made yourself known to us. Father, I just pray tonight that I would be able to speak clearly and in a way that is interesting to listen to. And Father, we pray that we would all walk away tonight with a clearer understanding of who your son Jesus is. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Uh, for a number of years, I worked in outdoor recreation. I worked at the campsite. You guys have Camp One. Is that the name of your camp? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great camp. Um, I used I used to work at that campsite over in the Royal National Park. I worked there for a number of years, and I worked on kind of a team that looked after school groups that came in. There might even be some of you in the room that I've had on a camp before. But I um I, I was on a team that looked after school groups that came through, and my job was to hang about with a small group of about 15 kids or so, and uh, and do all the activities with them, kind of as they spent their time on camp. Now, over the five years that I spent working at YouthWorks, I got pretty comfortable with working at Heights. Is anyone like a fan of Heights in the room? It's like no hands have gone up. Okay, like a couple of weirdos that like Heights, yeah. I got pretty used to working with Heights. A couple of our activities um, required us working with Heights, kind of abseiling, kind of going down walls, climbing, high ropes activities, those sorts of things. And the training that I had to do meant that I spent lots of time at Heights. And so sort of hanging out on the side of a cliff, 10, 15, 20 metres up, 30 metres up, like it, it, it wasn't really an issue for me. Like I was, I was very comfortable doing that sort of thing. A couple of years ago, two years ago in fact, my boss took a number of us out um, up to Katoomba as like a, a professional development day. It was pretty cool. We went up to Katoomba and we spent the day doing some traversing across rocks and some climbing and some abseiling to continue to kind of push us. So we kind of you know, felt that experience that the kids feel when they step out onto an abseil wall. Um, and so it was really great. We went up to Katoomba, up to um, a place called Boar's Head Rock, which was really awesome. And kind of we looked out over the Megalong Valley, if you know Katoomba well. Uh, and it was a wonderful day. I spent the day with my colleagues, just kind of chatting. We had beautiful views all day. I remember it was a bitterly cold day, very, very windy up there. And it was, it was pretty fun. Right? We started off doing kind of, kind of some small abseils, so like tied ourselves into ropes and we'd go down the rock wall. Uh, and we did that for a little bit and it was cool. And we did some kind of scurrying around this big rock together, which was really good. We worked our way up to our final abseil. Um, the abseil that we did was only about 20, 25 metres and we kind of went down for a bit and then scurried into a ledge and, and continued walking. But the rock wall itself stood about 200 metres up from the tree line below. There's going to be a picture to pop up, which, um, yeah, I'm... A little bit terrified. <laughs> I'm feeling a bit anxious looking at this picture right now. But if you can kind of squint, you can sort of see the little guy. There's like a little dude like on the rock face over there. This, this isn't a picture of me, but this was the abseil that we had to do that day. And I kind of turned around and looked back and you could see all of Megalong Valley. You could see just this canopy of trees as you looked out. And it was the first time in a long time that I had gone abseiling and thought, I hope this bolt in the wall holds. (laughs) I hope that it is in there securely. It's the first time in a long time that I'd kind of thought, I'm actually staking a lot going abseiling. 
Uh, it was only a 20 or 30 meter abseil that we were doing, but we were hundreds of meters up from the ground. And as I looked up and saw that metal bolt in the wall, it was the first time in a long time that I thought, I am staking a lot here. I'm putting a lot of trust in this bolt in the wall. Now, I start off telling this story because I think consciously or not, we all stake our lives on different things. Whether it's something that we're aware of or not, I think all of us stake our lives on different things. And by that I mean, there's different things that we choose, that we say, I'm going to love this thing, I'm going to value this thing. This thing is going to be the most important thing for me. I will hinge almost my life on this thing, as if it were a bolt in the wall. So friends, I want to ask you tonight, what is it that you stake your life on? What is it that you stake your life on? What is the thing that you would say is the most valuable thing, the most precious thing, the most important thing to you? How would you finish this sentence if kind of war and famine came through? They could take everything, but they couldn't touch my family and friends, my health, maybe my freedom. How would you finish that sentence? What... Do you stake your life on? Now, from, from time to time, I think it's a necessary question for us to ask ourselves. It's good from time to time for us to pause and ask ourselves a question like this. Because, you see, the message of the Bible says that actually many of the things that we stake our life on won't hold. If we imagine it kind of like a bolt in a rock wall, the Bible says many of the things that people choose to stake their life on do not hold whether it be family, whether it be health, whether it be freedom or happiness, the Bible says all of those things actually at some point will fail us. They will not do the job of holding us. The message of the Bible says that actually there is only one thing that we can stake our life on that will hold us. And that thing is the person of Jesus. That thing is the person of Jesus. It's a pretty big call, isn't it? It's a pretty big statement to say that only Jesus is, Jesus is the only thing that we can stake our life on. And for the security of family, for kind of the peace of mind of being in good health, the options that freedom brings us or, or the joy of happiness, for all of those good things, it's a big statement to say that actually only Jesus will hold us. That is a significant statement. And I think it would be fair if any of us here tonight were thinking, well, how could I actually be sure that I could stake my life on Jesus? Kind of what would give me that confidence that Jesus, that I could actually stake my life on Jesus, that he could be the most important, the most valuable, the most precious thing to me? I think that would be a pretty fair question if you were asking that tonight. Well, I think the answer to that question is what we are going to see in this passage this passage, we are going to see why it is exactly that we can stake our lives on Jesus. Alrighty, as we kind of approach Matthew 28, which we read a bit earlier, let's kind of just remember what's been happening previously. As we read through the Gospel of Matthew, this book in the Bible, kind of around verse chapter 26, we see that Jesus was captured. 
He was there with his disciples and some groups of men, these chief priests and the Pharisees, they come up, these these religious guys, they come up and they take Jesus and they take him to the authorities and they want this guy killed. They've had enough of Jesus. They've had some conversations, interactions with him before and they've had enough of him. They want him dead. And so we actually read in the Bible that these guys take him before the authorities. They bring false charges to this guy so that they can have him killed. And after a bit, of, a bit of back and forth, we read actually that does happen, that he is handed over to the authorities, he is taken up on a hill, he is nailed to a cross, and he dies there. That's what we read in the chapters heading, uh, heading into, verse, into chapter 27. We see that an innocent man is wrongly convicted and he is given the death of a criminal. We read right towards the end of chapter 27 that his body is taken down and he is placed in a tomb. Now I'm going to read the last five verses of chapter 27 because I think they provide for us the helpful context as we come into chapter 28. Let me read the last couple of verses of chapter 27. It says, The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said... After three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Kind of catch what's going on here. These religious leaders, they were aware that Jesus had said that after his death he would rise again. And they were concerned that if, if they didn't do anything, maybe his disciples, maybe some of Jesus' friends would go in and they would take his body and say, ha, see, he's gone. We told you that he would rise again. He said that he would rise again. So they want to take action, don't they? They go to Pilate and say, can we do something about this? He says, sure. And so they go, they, there's the big kind of stone in front of the tomb and they put a seal on it and they get the guards standing there ready to look out for anyone that might want to come and take Jesus' body. That's where we pick up our story in chapter 28. We read in chapter 28 that three days after his death that these two, these two ladies, both of them named Mary, head over to the tomb. Now, is this the start of an Ocean's Eleven heist? Are they about to go in and, and, and steal this body? No, that's, that's not what's going on. We read, in fact, that the others of Jesus' followers, his other disciples, those that were, um, that were Jesus' friends, by this stage they'd actually dispersed. They weren't around any longer. They feared that what happened to Jesus would actually happen to them. And we read that some of them actually locked themselves in a room. They were terrified. So these, these two ladies didn't have any support with them. They knew that the tomb was guarded by, um, by people there. And so it wasn't any kind of heist going on here. They were just doing the customary thing of going down to the tomb, taking some spices for the dead body. You could imagine this would be a pretty difficult walk for them, don't you think? A pretty difficult walk for these two women. We can only imagine what they would have been, would have been feeling. Indeed, for these two women and for many of other, many of um, Jesus' other followers, there was a lot of hope and expectation placed towards Jesus. 
Jesus spoke, of, of, Jesus spoke about pretty big things happening in this world and many of them trusted what he had to say. There was a lot of hope and expectation that Jesus was going to do something special. And we can imagine what their experience would have been like almost in the blink of an eye. He was captured by people. He was taken to the authorities. He was beaten and whipped and taken up on a hill. A hill. He was nailed to a cross and they watched as he died. We can only imagine what that experience would have been like for them. The hope and expectation that Jesus brought had been dashed in a moment. So we can only suspect what this slow walk to the tomb would have been like for the ladies as they prepared to gaze upon Jesus' body, lying there dead one last time. But as it turned out, nothing could prepare them for what they were, able, for what they were about to see. Um, as the two Marys arrived at the tomb, they got there and they looked out and they saw the tomb and they saw the stone and they saw the soldiers. Except nothing was set up how they might have imagined, was it? As we read a little bit earlier, the soldiers that were there guarding the tomb, they weren't standing there kind of making sure that no one was coming around vigilantly looking. They were lying down on the ground, petrified, still not moving as if they had seen a ghost. The stone that was guarding the tomb wasn't where it had been, blocking the entrance. It had been rolled away to the side. And the tomb that they had gone to, as they looked inside, there wasn't a dead body lying down as they were expecting to see, but it was empty. There was no one inside. And after they get to the scene and look around, they notice, uh, sitting upon the rock just to the side, that there is a man sitting there, decked out in white clothing, that we read in the passage was an angel sent from God. They look over to the angel, the angel looks back at them, and we read that the angel addresses them. And he says, don't be afraid, for I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. And then the angel has these words for the ladies. He is not here, he has risen. He is not here, he has risen. I think maybe the seven most significant words said in the Bible, probably said in all human history, he is not here, he has risen. Jesus, the self-proclaimed saviour of God's people, the long-awaited for king, the, the person who said of himself that if you want to know what God is like, you come through me, had been taken, captured, hung up on a cross, killed for all to see, had lay down dead in a tomb for three days, and now as the ladies arrive to the tomb, he is not here, he has risen. We read then that the angel tells the two ladies to leave where they are, to head off to Galilee, because they will go there and meet Jesus. And understandably, with mixed emotion, they leave the scene. They they head away from the tomb with kind of fear from from what they've just seen, joy from what they might see in the future with Jesus. They head off from the tomb. We read they quickly leave off to Galilee. And as they're on their way to the next town along, they are stopped by someone in their midst, someone standing in front of them. It's Jesus. Not a decaying, rotting, dead body, but... A real person, a live person, a breathing, standing, talking person in front of them. 
He is not here. He has risen. We read that the two ladies collapse to the floor and start worshipping Jesus, holding on to his feet, probably seeing the places, either the scars or the holes or the marks where Jesus had been pierced to the cross himself. Standing there in their midst, Jesus had risen. And whilst the Pharisees might have been prepared for a group of people coming and stealing the body, they did everything they could. A stone was there in front of the tomb. They had guards there stopping anyone from coming. Whilst they did all they could to stop someone from stealing the body, there was nothing the chief priests or the Pharisees could do if Jesus were to actually rise again. There was nothing that they could do in preparation if, in fact, Jesus himself were to rise again. Nothing they could do to stop the true Son of God, the true King of this world, really coming back to life. He is not here. He has risen. Now, a little bit earlier, we asked the question together, how could we be sure that we could stake our lives on Jesus? How could Jesus ever be the most important, the most significant thing in our life? How could we be sure that we could ever stake our life on Jesus? My friends, I think this is how. Because of the words of this angel, he is not here, he has risen. Because of this, we can confidently pin all of our trust, all of our hopes for the future, our meaning and purpose for how we live now, and our value and identity as humans in this person of Jesus because he has risen from the grave. He did not stay dead. I said these were the most significant significant words ever said before, not to be dramatic or to speak in exaggeration or hyperbole or anything like that, but because if in fact Jesus did rise from the, from the dead, he is who he claimed to be. He is God. He is the true king of this world. He was there at the creation of the universe and he reigns over everything today. If in fact Jesus did rise from the dead, then his death on the cross wasn't simply just a tragedy of injustice. Rather, it was an ultimate display of love, wasn't it? That Jesus rose from the, from the dead confirms to us that whilst being hung up on the cross was the acts of evil and wicked men that did not like him, that his death on the cross was also something that he went to willingly as a payment for our sins, knowing that as he was hung up on the cross and he took the sins of the world, that he made it possible for us to be in a relationship with God. If in fact Jesus did rise from the, from the dead, we can be sure today that there is a God in our midst looking upon us, each and every one of us, wanting the best for all of us here in this room. And if in fact Jesus did rise from the dead, we can be sure that he is the only thing that we can stake our lives on. For as good as family and friends and freedom and happiness are, for the great joy that they bring us and for the good that they are in this world, none of them can bear the weight that we might put on them if we choose to stake our lives on them. None are as sure and as steadfast and reliable and certain as staking your life on Jesus. 
Um, at the start of the week, I was uh, at my home church. We were running a, a holiday kids club for a number of primary school students. And we looked at this story together. We kind of looked at the big story of the Bible where people turned away from God, starting with Adam and Eve, and all of us had followed in suit. We then went to look at Jesus' life and what he did and what he taught and some of the miracles that he did. And and we looked at the significance of his death on the cross and his rising to new life. I was doing that at the start of the week at my home church. And after the talk each day, the little talk that we did with the kids, we got to sit down in some small groups. And I remember on Tuesday, I sat down with a small group of primary school boys and we discussed, they kind of asked many, many questions, as you expect from young, young kids. They asked all sorts of questions um, about the talk that they had seen. And I asked them, guys, kind of we've heard this story about Jesus dying on the cross. How do you think we should respond to the story that we heard today? What, what do you think is the right way to respond to a story like this? And one of the boys in the group, a little boy named Alex, he was in year four. It's his first time that he'd ever come along to church. I think a friend from, his, from school had invited him along. This little boy uh, piped up, he put his hand up and he said, we should be very thankful. I said, how do you think we should respond to this story? He said, we should be very thankful. And I think he was right on the money. I think he was right on the money. Thankfulness is the appropriate way to respond to hearing about what Jesus has done on the cross and indeed what he's done in rising to new life. Thankfulness and trusting in him. Uh, for those of you that were here last night, did anyone do their homework? I said a bit of homework last night. A bit of a mean thing to do in the holidays. Did, did anyone do their homework? A couple of people. Yeah, you don't have to put your hands up. That's all right. I gave everyone a question to go mull over yesterday and to be brave and go and speak to someone about that question. And I've got some more homework for you guys today. This is where we'll finish up. My question for you guys today is, as we, as we wrap up here, um, Summerfest for this year and as, as we head off into this new year, is what is it that you stake your life on? That is your homework for you guys. That is the question that I want you to mull over. What is it that you stake your life on? I'm going to pray for us. Father, we give you great thanks again for your son Jesus that came to this world, that made you known to us. Father, thank you that he willingly went to the cross to die for our sins and to make a way for us to come to be in a relationship with you. Father, would you help us to reflect well on our lives and to consider what it is that we hold as most important, as as most valuable and as most precious. And Father, would you help us to consider what it is those things are? Help us to consider the story that we've heard tonight about your son Jesus. And would many of us tonight uh, decide to put our trust in you as the sure king, the risen king of this world. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.